Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 20 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our October 2012 issue. Note that you will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Our continuing medical education offering for October looks at the effects that pathological gambling has on family life. In a study funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Donald Black and colleagues at the University of Iowa compared 95 subjects with DSM-IV-defined pathological gambling to a control group. They found that the pathological gamblers were over two and a half times more likely to have been divorced and four and a half times as likely to live alone. They were also four times as likely to have experienced childhood maltreatment. Furthermore, on a scale rating general family functioning, 55% of families with a pathological gambler were rated as unhealthy, compared to 33% of controlled families. In summary, the study concluded that people with pathological gambling are more likely than controls to have been divorced, to live alone, to have experienced childhood maltreatment, and to have greater family dysfunction. To receive CME credit, read the full article at psychiatrist.com and take the post-test. The substantial and highly variable placebo response rate in clinical trials for major depressive disorder is a major obstacle to the success of the trial since high placebo response may prevent detection of the drug treatment signal and lead to an uninformative trial. To explore this issue, the authors conducted a meta-analysis of 204 clinical trials of antidepressant monotherapy or adjunctive polypharmacy for MDD. They investigated the relationship between specific levels of placebo response rates and the drug response rate. They also calculated the relative risk of response to drug versus placebo. The results showed that a higher placebo response rate correlated with higher antidepressant response rates. Moreover, the relative efficacy of the active drug compared to placebo was highly heterogeneous across studies with different placebo response rates. Also, higher placebo response rates were correlated with a lower probability of detecting a statistically significant superiority of drug versus placebo. The authors conclude that these findings underline the importance of maintaining placebo response rates below a critical threshold, 30 to 40 percent, and that the response rate in the placebo group is a key aspect to take into account when interpreting results from trials with equivocal outcomes. With the active spread of HIV in many regions of the world, mental health status and suicidal behavior among people living with AIDS or HIV are of increasing public concern. 
A group from Denmark investigated socioeconomic status and psychiatric well-being in persons with AIDS or HIV and assessed suicide risk associated with AIDS and HIV in the context of these factors. Using interlinked data from Danish national registers for male suicide completers and matched controls, they found that patients with AIDS or HIV shared a number of socioeconomic disadvantages, including living as single people and having a low income. Comorbidity with other physical illnesses was common, but a large proportion of these patients developed psychiatric illness after being diagnosed with AIDS or HIV. A significantly increased risk of suicide was found, with substantial risk found among inpatients, new patients, and recently treated or frequently treated patients. The increased risk was slightly stronger before the introduction of highly active antiretroviral therapy in 1997, but remained highly significant even after that time. The authors detected a strong interactive effect in which the comorbidity of AIDS or HIV with psychiatric illness increased suicide risk substantially. They point to a need to make suicide risk assessment and management an integral part of treatment plans for people with AIDS or HIV with a focus on improving psychiatric and somatic follow-up. Emerging literature reports that pediatric bipolar disorder afflicts more than 1% of children. Family studies are a cornerstone for the validation of any psychiatric disorder, and toward this end, a group from Massachusetts General Hospital conducted a meta-analysis and family study with funding from the National Institutes of Health. Their goal was to determine the risk for bipolar I disorder in first-degree relatives of children with DSM-IV bipolar I disorder. The meta-analysis identified five controlled family studies of pediatric bipolar I disorder. The family study included 239 children aged 6 to 17 years with bipolar I disorder and 726 of their first-degree relatives. Smaller samples of children with ADHD and healthy controls, along with their relatives, were also included. Results of the meta-analysis showed that first-degree relatives of children with bipolar I disorder had a seven-fold increase risk of bipolar I disorder. Further, the family study indicated that the risk among these first-degree relatives was also significantly higher than among relatives of children with ADHD. According to the authors, the study results indicate an increased familial risk for bipolar I disorder in relatives of pediatric probands with DSM-IV bipolar I disorder. Juvenile onset bipolar disorder is marked by frequent association with ADHD or multiple anxiety disorders that usually precede the early manifestations of bipolar disorder. The authors of this article hypothesized that these two pathways to early bipolarity may be related to specific clinical phenotypes in youths. 
to test their hypothesis, the authors compared three groups of subjects all composed of youth with bipolar disorder plus one of three combinations of ADHD and anxiety disorder. 49 young people had ADHD without anxiety. 76 had multiple anxiety disorders without ADHD and 52 had no ADHD or anxiety disorders. Study results showed that subjects with pre-bipolar ADHD had a distinct phenotype compared to subjects with multiple anxiety disorders and subjects without ADHD or anxiety. Subjects with pre-bipolar ADHD were more frequently male, had an earlier age at onset of bipolar symptoms, had a prevalent chronic course, and had an irritable or dysphoric mood. A frequently occurring complication was the other disruptive behavior disorders, the most troublesome of which was conduct disorder. The authors conclude that the presence of comorbid ADHD is indicative of fundamental differences in the phenomenology and outcome of bipolar disorder in young people. They note that this finding is consistent with recent MRI studies and longitudinal clinical studies in adult patients, both supporting the specificity of bipolarity with a history of childhood ADHD. DSM-5 includes a new proposed diagnosis called Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder, or DMDD, for youth with chronic irritability and severe temper outbursts. The small amount of research on DMDD indicates that it may be associated with future onset of depression or anxiety. Given the schedule for DSM-5, there is not enough time to conduct prospective studies. With funding from NIMH, David Axelson and colleagues examined data from the Longitudinal Assessment of Manic Symptoms Study of 706 children aged 6 to 12 years. DMDD criteria were applied to the previously gathered data to study the clinical presentation of children meeting DMDD criteria and whether DMDD can be differentiated from other disorders in terms of clinical features, illness course, and family history. Much of the sample had manic symptoms, but a subset did not. 26% of the children met criteria for DMDD, and throughout the two-year follow-up, 40% met the criteria at some point. However, in about half the cases, the child met criteria at only one of three assessments. The children with DMDD had higher rates of oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, but did not differ in mood or anxiety disorders or in severity of inattentive, hyperactive, manic, depressive, or anxiety symptoms. Among the children with oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, a majority met DMDD criteria, but they did not differ in comorbidity, symptom severity, or impairment from those who did not have DMDD. 
The authors conclude that disruptive mood dysregulation disorder could not be differentiated from other disruptive behavior disorders and that it had limited diagnostic stability. In their opinion, the findings raise concerns about the diagnostic utility of DMDD. In recent years, the number of adolescents receiving laparoscopic adjustable gastric banding as a weight loss treatment has increased substantially. Younger patients presenting for bariatric surgery often experience psychiatric symptoms, but the role of mental health providers in this population is not well defined. In addition, whether an adolescent is approved to receive surgery is often the result of clinical judgment alone. Cisco and colleagues conducted a study aimed at evaluating psychiatric symptoms in a large sample of adolescents receiving this weight loss procedure by examining changes in depressive symptoms and quality of life in the year following surgery. Evaluating the interaction between patterns of change in depression, quality of life, and post-surgery weight, and identifying pre-surgical psychological predictors of initial weight change. Just over 100 severely obese adolescents aged 14 to 18 years were included in the study. Measures of height, weight, depressive symptoms, and quality of life were obtained in the first year following surgery. Significant improvements in depressive symptoms as measured by the Beck Depression Inventory and quality of life as assessed by the Pediatric Quality of Life Inventory were found post-surgery. Similar post-operative changes were noted between psychosocial variables and body mass index. Family conflict and loss of control eating were significant predictors of weight change during the year following surgery. Preoperative binge eating and family conflict predicted a reduced rate of change in the post-surgery body mass index among these youth. To date, the detailed etiology of bipolar disorders is not fully understood. As with other psychiatric disorders, such as schizophrenia, more and more studies strongly suggest that bipolar disorder results from a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Some studies have suggested that certain genetic polymorphisms are associated with susceptibility to bipolar disorder. The authors of this case-controlled study conducted a genetic association analysis between 11 single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, in the YWHAE gene and bipolar disorder. The study received funding from various research programs of the Chinese government. Study participants were divided into male and female groups. In the analysis of the allele and genotype frequencies, the authors found that one of the SNPs in the YWHAE gene increased susceptibility to bipolar disorder in the male group. An analysis of the CAC haplotype revealed that three of the 11 SNPs were shown to be protective factors for bipolar disorder in the male group. On the other hand, 
the CAT haplotype in the male group and the AAC and CAT haplotypes in the female group were shown to be risk factors for bipolar disorder. The authors conclude that these results should encourage further investigation into YWHAE and its potential role in the etiology of neurological and psychiatric diseases. Don't miss the Practical Psychopharmacology column for October, in which Dr. Andrade discusses the placebo effect and how it shows up in clinical settings. When prescribing medication, it is important to be aware of the reasons for patients' improvement that don't involve a direct effect of the drug. Dr. Andrade elaborates on several of these, including the Hawthorne effect and the halo effect. In closing, be sure to take a look at our letters and book reviews and participate in the interactive activities from our CME Institute. Join us online for all this and more from the October issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.